you'll turn with me this morning to Luke chapter 15, we get to study together one of the most sublime passages in all of Scripture. Luke 15. I've got the King James rendering this morning. It's really the story of all stories, isn't it? I mean, it's the parable of all parables, the lesson of all lessons. Charles Dickens and Ralph Waldo Emerson, pretty good writers in their own right, wrote that this story in Luke chapter 15, it's really the story of the two sons, right? Not just the prodigal, is a masterpiece. So today I hope we can put on our sandals and enter into the story along with the scribes, the Pharisees, the sinners, and the publicans or tax collectors who were the main people listening when Jesus told it. Let's pray before we get into God's word. Oh, Father in heaven, we thank you so much for your holy word and the lessons that it teaches us. Please, Lord, teach us today. Give us clarity of understanding. May we put aside all the distractions today that your word may be the prime thing in our thoughts. Convict us, Lord, of truth and how to apply it to our lives, make us catalysts to a lost and dying world that is in such desperate and daily need. We thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, Luke chapter 15. And if anything could really sum this up, I think it would be the statement shock factor because everything in this story is just like, (gasps) what? I mean, if you, if you are in the little village in their time, that's what your every, almost every thought would be. Not just what the son does, but what the father does. It's scandalous, the whole thing. So we're going to look at it today. But to sort of illustrate this, this shock moment, <clears throat> I'll put this in the third person so you think it's not me. Uh, <laughs> I knew a pastor once. And he married this, um, this lady, she was a Filipina, and the husband was uh, American, this was in California. And you know, you never practice the veil, right? You just never, I mean, you know, you don't practice the veil, it's not something you practice. So as the bride is coming down, and by the way, veil is done very differently in different cultures, correct? Yes. So as the the bride-to-be is coming down the aisle. I'm like, oh no, she's still got her veil down. What's gonna happen here? Because usually in the American weddings, you know, they come down and this was a pastor who was bringing her down. Her father wasn't there. A lot of times in in American weddings, right? The, uh, by the way, the boarders have a very exciting day coming up for their daughter. Congratulations. It's coming soon. They've been planning that. But usually the the bride comes down, the father lifts the veil, gets a little peck on the cheek, and then they go on with the service, right? That's what I thought was, I mean, this other pastor thought was gonna happen. Well, as the bride's coming down, I ask one of the bridesmaids, I'm like, Liz, who's who's gonna lift the veil? Who's gonna lift the veil? And I could have swore she said, you pastor, you pastor. And I was like, really? So here comes the bride, she comes down to the front, and here I come, and I lift the veil. 
And all the older Filipino ladies go, oh, they told me I just should have kissed her and just finished the deal. But anyway, I mean this other third person, pastor that did this. But anyway, that was a shock factor, right? The, the ladies were just in shock. We should be in shock as we read this story in so many ways. And we'll look at that today. There's actually three parables, isn't there? Not just one. And so if you're in Luke chapter 15, that's where I'm going. Luke chapter 15 this morning. And we're going to look at verse 1 and 2 because this sets the picture for all the rest for the parables that Jesus tells. It says this, Then drew near unto him, that is unto Jesus, all the publicans and sinners for to hear him. So all the publicans and sinners are drawing near. It says all the publican sinners. I'm sure it wasn't all, but I mean it seemed like all. Verse 2, And the Pharisees and the scribes murmured, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. By the way, we're all going to have, um, this is not exactly <laughs> this, uh, the time for this, but I, uh, don't miss the, the meal that we're going to have together after the service for Elsie. We want everybody to come. But Jesus was not only accepting of these people, he was eating with them, and that is the ultimate of acceptance, right? In that culture, to have a meal with someone, that's the ultimate. And so that's exactly what was happening. Jesus was eating and accepting these sinners. And oh, how the scribes and Pharisees had a problem with that. And so Jesus decides, you know what? I'm going to give you a parable, actually three parables. And I'm going to give you the consummate sinner, the ultimate sinner, and I'm going to tell you how God would treat that person. That's what we have as we go on here. First, of course, the lost sheep. Knew he was lost, but he didn't know how to get back. Verse 3, And he spake this parable unto them, saying, What man of you has a hundred sheep? And if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety and nine and go out in the wilderness to go after that which is lost until he finds it. And when he has found it, he doesn't just let it try to walk back on its little legs, does he? No, he doesn't even try to drive it back. He puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. When he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says unto them, Rejoice with me, for I have found the sheep which was lost. I say unto you that likewise joy shall be in heaven over one sinner that repents more than over the 99 just persons. That's got to be in parentheses, right? He's talking about the scribes and Pharisees there for sure who thought they were just, over the 99 just persons which need no repentance. And so this amazing story, the great hundredth psalm, according to its true rendering, reads this, it is he that has made us and we are his and we are the sheep of his pasture. 
By the way, anytime you find sort of a, um, a story about someone who's um, kind of a trouble person in the Bible, that's you. That's me, <laughs> right? That's usually the case. Jesus is talking to us. We're usually not the good person in the story. And here Jesus talks about his love for his sheep. That would be us. Sheep don't have a lot of sense. <laughs> we know that. But think about this. God's true relation to his sheep is not simply in the act of creation. For there is only one way in which that relation can fully be said to be complete, right? And that is through the voluntary yielding of oneself to the other. That's what Christ is looking for. So Jesus Christ, who is always seeking after us, is the voice of almighty love and does not count that he has found a man until that man has learned to love him. Have you learned to love Jesus as your savior? And just as sure as that happens, there is rejoicing, amen? When God and man come together in that relationship of faith. Well, think also about this one lost sheep in terms of this. Christ left the 90 and 9 just and sinless worlds that loved him and came down, down, down until he came here and he found it. That's what the parable tells us. He laid on his shoulders. Again, he does not let them walk on their own legs or go it alone. He doesn't just lead them. He picks them up and carries them on his shoulders. What a picture of God and his care for us. We all know about the footprints in the sand, right? All of a sudden, one pair of footprints is not there anymore. What's happening? <laughs> He's carrying us. Oh, how many times has Jesus carried us and we did not know it? This is a quote now we must, from a book called Evangelism, we must bear in mind the great joy manifested by the shepherd at the recovery of the lost. He calls upon his neighbors, rejoice with me for I have found my sheep which was lost and all heaven echoes the note of joy. The father himself joys over the rescued one with singing. What a holy ecstasy of joy is expressed in this parable. And I love this last line. That joy, it is your privilege to share. Amen? God has called us to be soul winners, to go after those that are lost. Amen? And there's so many all around us that are in such great need of our help. Well, the second short parable starts in verse 7. Sorry, verse 8 says this, Either what woman, having ten pieces of silver, if she loses one piece, does not light a candle and sweep the house and seek diligently till she find it? Again, this is the picture of Christ, right? The one who, who lights the candle, who sweeps, who diligently seeks. But it's also a picture of us as we have Christ in us for winning of the lost. 
Verse 9, and when she had found it, she called her friends and her neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say unto you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner that repents. Very interesting here, this piece of silver, not the denarius, the coin of the day, but drachma. Greek coin, long out of currency. Could it be that very often these were used in the headdress that the uh, woman would wear at her marriage? So if she had lost one of those pieces, that would be more than just one-tenth of her income, right? This is something with sentimental value. And very likely that was the case there. But again, we see this, something is lost, Something is found, but not until great effort is taking place, right? There's effort in soul winning. We can't expect God to just fill up our church or give us souls for his kingdom, amen? Effort is involved, but oh, the reward of working for Christ. And that's what we all are to do, amen? Not just pastors or Bible workers, but to all be workers for him, we go now to the parable of the two sons in the time we have left. And this is the jaw dropper. It really is for those that heard it. And indeed, again, Christ is painting this picture of the ultimate, the consummate sinner, the perfect sinner, so to speak. And you'll see that as we go on. Verse 11, a certain man had how many sons? Two sons, right? So it's not just the parable of the prodigal. And the younger one of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And he divided unto them, that is the two sons, his living. There was only two sons. The older would get two-thirds. The younger would get one-third. But this father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. He doesn't want to run the farm, right? Or, or continue the business for the next generation. That's not what he wants. He wants his goods so he can go. He wants out of the family. Now, a good upstanding Middle Eastern man right now would do something, but it's not what this man did. You know what he would do? He would probably slap him across the face, right? That's what would take place. And so, who was it? Chris Rock and the other, you know, Chris Rock's got nothing on this guy, okay? <laughs> this guy, I mean, in the, in the vernacular of the day and in the, in the culture of the day should have been slapped in the face. That's what the right thing would have been to do. That's why when the village and when the scribes and Pharisees here, he just gave him what he asked for, they are astounded. This is one of those huh, moments for those listening. First of all, that he'd ask for it. And secondly, that the father would give it. It's scandalous on both sides. How could it be possible? Verse 13, And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and wasted his substance with riotous living. Not many days after? Do you know how long it would take to liquidate this guy's estate? 
He must have sold everything for pennies on the dollar just so that this wayward son could have his way. The village is just shaking their heads. What is happening here? And so he spent all that was given to him on riotous living in a far country and wasted it indeed. Verse 14, And when he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine or severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Now, there's something called a SWOT analysis that they do on businesses. Anybody ever heard of that? S-W-O-T. It's strength, weaknesses, opportunities, threats. And the strengths and weaknesses are things you can actually control somewhat. The opportunities and threats, not so much. He could control the fact that he just wasted all his stuff. But out of his control was this severe famine. I doubt any of us here have ever witnessed or been through severe famine And when they are hearing severe famine, they're they're thinking, okay, eating sandals, eating other people. I mean, this was severe famine. Look at severe famine in the Old Testament. This is not just, oh, you know, know, maybe I can't get my extra Panera bread. No, no, this severe famine was something massive that was taking place. And very, nothing like we could even think of today, really, unless in a third world country you may have gone through something like that. So now he spent everything. There's this severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. But it goes even lower for him. And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, kind of clinging to this guy, right? Just trying to, trying to make it. <clears throat> and he sent him into the fields to feed his swine. Now, a good Jewish boy feeding swine? I mean, this is, you know, the village is like, what? I mean, everybody's aghast that this could even happen. Not only feeding the swine, but what else? He wanted to eat the pods that they were eating. Oh, how low could it go? But remember, Jesus is painting a picture here of the consummate sinner. He's like, okay, you think I eat with sinners and tax collectors? I'll show you the consummate sinner, and then I'll show you how he should be dealt with. That's what he's doing. And so he would have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, but no man gave to him. I read one commentary that said those husks would have blown up in his belly. The pigs have a different system and are able to eat them, but man couldn't eat those particular things, and so it would have caused even more problem. But no man would give him. And then verse 17 is a bit of a turning point, isn't it? It says, and when he came to himself, and I would put forth to you today that he came to himself, but it wasn't of himself. Amen? When God came into your life, did you, it's because you started getting better and, you know, dropping habits? No, no, no. It's not how it works. The Holy Spirit did the work. Amen? Jonathan Edwards is known for Sinners Before an Angry God. That's the sermon he's most known for. And apparently when he preached it, people were passing out because of his views of judgment were so graphic. 
But he wrote another sermon before that called A Divine and Supernatural Light. And it was about how God, through the Holy Spirit, works on people's hearts. We send out Bible study interest cards. We, we want to work with people, right? Unless the Holy Spirit anoints that, it's nothing. Amen? It's nothing. The Holy Spirit does the work. You did not bring yourself to God. God brought you to himself. Amen? So that, you know, when, you know, we t- people talk about when I was saved. Okay, but realize he's the one that did the work. Amen? You just responded in a positive way at that particular time. Well, here he came to himself, but it wasn't of himself. And he said this about his father, how many hired servants of my father have bread enough and to spare? So his father was obviously quite generous to those around him. Others would not give enough and to spare, but his father did. And I perish with hunger. I will arise and go to my father. So first he came to himself, and now he is talking about coming to his father. And I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. And so he realized that he was a sinner in need of a savior. Crucial first step for salvation, wouldn't you say? And am no more worthy to be called your son, but make me as one of your hired servants. Mm. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father. The father, you could imagine, was probably doing his business, had forgotten all about that wretched son of his and was just getting along with the other son and building things and just doing his work. What do you think? No, no. And he arose and came to his father, but, but when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. I'm going to stop right there because what we have here is a literary device called a polysyndeton, which is a device of many ands, A-N-D. And so at every and, you're supposed to stop and let it sink in. He did this and. He did this and. He did this. So I hope you'll let this sink in a little as we read it. This father, when... Still, his son was a great way off. And how did he know? How did he know? Was it something in his gait, you know, the way he walked or, you know, people just know, right? You know your kids when, you're, it's when your kids are coming or your parents. It's like, yeah, that's my dad coming. It's like, how did you know that? He was way off. No, you know. If you're a parent, you know what I'm talking about. You just know. At 9-11, when they had to find the bodies and they were searching through the rubble, there were parents that knew. They're like, I, I know my son's right here. And they were right. Well, this father, yet a great way off from his son, knew that it was him. And he saw him. And now we come into this polysyndeton. He saw him and had compassion. And ran. And fell on his neck and kissed him. And then he said something to the son too. But let's just, we got to stop and slow down on this just a moment. He was a great way off. The father wasn't 
I'm sure shaking his finger saying, oh, you rascal, you. <laughs> now you've come home after you spent everything and there's a famine in the land. Well, treats you right. No, no. No, he saw him and had compassion. And then he did something that no good, and this would have been another one of those, oh, moments. He ran. No Middle Eastern man would do this. That would mean he'd have to pick up his, his robe and tie his belt a little tighter so his legs would be seen. Middle Eastern men don't do that. So the village had to be thinking, oh, what? He ran? He had compassion? He should, if he didn't slap him before, he should be slapping him now. He's way off. The father sees him. He has compassion. He runs and falls on his neck and kissed him. And this kiss in the, in the Greek is, um, it's in a, a voice and a tense that it's, it's a continual thing. He didn't just kiss him once. He kissed him all over the head, right? He just, all over, he's kissing him on and on. And the village is just like, what is happening here? Surely he should slap him now. This son. But remember the lesson, what is Jesus trying to teach? How he deals with sinners, the ultimate sinner, the guy who's gone to the furthest, lowest possible part, feeding pigs. Oy vey. He ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Now, think about the heart of the father. Little did the gay, thoughtless youth as he went out from his father's gate dream of the ache and the longing left in the father's hearts. When he danced and feasted with his companions, little did he think of the shadow that had fallen on his home. And now, as with weary and painful steps, he pursues the homeward way, probably shoeless. And he had to, he was a great way off. He didn't have any money. He must have walked, right? He knows that one is watching for his return. While he's a great way off, the father discerns his form. Love is quick of sight. Not even the degradation of the years of sin can conceal the son from the father's eyes. He had compassion and ran and fell on his neck in a long, clinging, tender embrace. The father will permit no contemptuous eye to mock at his son's misery and tatters. He takes from his own shoulders the broad, rich mantle, and wraps it around the son's wasted form. The father holds him close to his side and brings him home. And as he brings him home, there is rejoicing in that house. Verse 21, again, the son said to him, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight, and am no more worthy to be called your son. Doesn't even get to say, make me as one of your hired servants. He's cut off before he can do that. 
But the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him. No one makes it to heaven without the robe of Christ's righteousness on them. Amen. Aren't you thankful for that beautiful robe? And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring hither the fatted calf, the fatted calf. This wasn't just any, you know, find any skinny cow. No, no, no. This was the fatted calf. This was a special calf. Kill it, let us eat, and be merry. For this my son was dead. Was he dead? Well, he was heading that way spiritually, wasn't he? But also, in the culture, with what he'd done, which was so terrible, they would many times have a funeral for a son like that that would run off, as if he was dead. This my son, which was dead, is alive again. He was lost and is found And they began to be merry. And so remember, we're dealing with a honor versus shame society in which they're growing up, right? Everything is for the honor. And so this now feast really is in honor of the father, not so much the son. The son, the father is going to give the son the honor, but honor versus shame is still very strong in the Middle East, not just there, but that in that culture among others. And so they're eating the fatted calf and they're all happy. Is that the case? No. (laughs) They're not all happy because one guy is pretty upset. The second son, who also was lost, right? He was in the church. He was still with the family, but he was as lost as the prodigal was lost. And they both just wanted the father's stuff. It wasn't about relationship with the father. We'll read it in just a few minutes we have. It was about his stuff, both of them. Now the elder son, verse 25, was in the field and he came and drew near to the house and he heard the music and dancing. Hey, what's happening here? Sounds like a party. What exactly is going on? Verse 27, one of the servants said to him, your brother, your brother's home. And your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him safe and sound. And oh, the older brother was just thrilled. Was he? No, not at all. Not at all. Verse 28, and he was angry and he would not go in. Now, remember, this is really, again, honor versus shame. This is honor really for his father, primarily. He won't go in. And so what does the father do? The father came out and entreated him and begged him. Again, you know, the village is like, Middle Eastern people are like, this is impossible. He shouldn't be doing this. Why would he go out? That son is such a wretch. Leave him out there. No. He went out. And he pleaded with him outside. Again, how amazing. Verse 29, and he answered and said to his father, look, is that the way you speak to your elders or to your father? No way. Look, who says that? Again, slap would be soon coming if that took place in this village. He said, look, 
All these many years I have served thee. Is that what you would say to your dad? <laughs> to someone you have a relationship with? No, no, you wouldn't say served. I, you know, I, we've loved each other all these years. We've been part of a family, not serve. Remember what the younger son said? He said, when I come back, maybe I can just be a servant in the family. Well, there already was one servant in the family, wasn't there? <laughs> That's what he was doing. He was serving. Neither transgressed I at any time the commandment, and yet thou gavest me a kid. Now, don't miss his point here, because there's, there's a point here. A kid being a young goat. You never even gave me a young goat, much less the fatted calf that we've been waiting to have a special celebration for. You gave that to him. That's what it's saying here. As soon as you saw this, your son, come, which has devoured his living with harlots, thou killed for him, huh, the fatted calf, wouldn't even give me a young goat. Then the father answers, and this is a lesson for the scribes and Pharisees, right? Because this older son, that's who he's representing. Verse 31, and he said unto him, son, and this is technon. He doesn't use the word son with this Greek word before. It's a special word of relationship. Son who I love, my family, my heart, my bios, my life. Son, thou art ever with me and all that I have is yours. It was meet or it was right that we should make merry and be glad for this Thy brother was dead and is alive again. The lost is found. Well, maybe some of you, I hope you entered into the story. I hope you felt like you were in there somewhere. Do you feel like maybe you were the older son? Maybe you grumble and you should be being thankful. Or maybe you feel like the prodigal. That prodigal son or that prodigal daughter is me. Maybe that's what you're feeling right now. I've fallen from where I should be. If there is a God out there, please hear my prayer. I'm lost and I'm scared. And I've got nowhere else to go. I'm not sure I can make it much further, Father. So if you're listening, could you give a helping hand to your son or to your daughter? There is a God out there who will hear your prayer. Come on and say amen if that's good news. Even when you feel like you have no clue of what to do next. If you're feeling lost, afraid, and alone, don't worry, child. Because there's a father who will love you as his own.